Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Welcome to this debate, A Tribal World, and it, it has all the signs of being a fascinating uh, conversation about the nature of the tribe and the community and whether it is a benefit for us or not. I mean, typically, we tend to think of communities and uh, social groups, society, as being good, yet communities can also be fortresses of privilege and conformity, as migrants know only too well. Is the tribe, from the football team to the nation, to be feared, or is finding our place in a larger group, whatever type, uh, what it is to be human? So uh, with me to discuss this, we have Julie Bindle, who's a writer, feminist, co-founder of Justice for Women. She's a regular writer for The Guardian. Uh, Brendan O'Neill is uh, written for um, The Spectator and The Guardian, but he's editor of Spiked Online, began his career at its predecessor, Living Marxism, the journal of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Now, before you decide he has a predictable set of tribal views, he also describes himself as being broadly libertarian. And Yasmin Alibi-Brown is an award-winning columnist, uh, author, and commentator uh, who's currently columnist at the International Business Times. She also founded British Muslims for Secular Democracy. And Simon Glendening, uh, who is Professor of European Philosophy at the LSE, who's also Director for the Forum for European Philosophy and author of Derrida's uh, Legacies. Uh, he describes his position as having moved from the, uh, an interest in European philosophy to the philosophy of Europe. So no doubt he'll tell us something about that in this debate. So I'm going to give each of them just three minutes initially to lay out their, their position on are tribes to be feared or are they an essential part of being human? I'm going to start off uh, with Julie. Well, I'm not sure that football supporters would necessarily see themselves as both a community and a tribe. Um, I can't imagine the football, um, what we used to call vandals of the 1970s and 80s, for example, saying, hey, we're part of like a violent community, which just goes to show, in my view, how ridiculous the term community is. Now, if we look back to what a community is supposed to be, and it's no wonder that private eye takes the piss out of it, which it does beautifully, I think it's a romanticized uh, vision, um, which is class-based, 
often people talk about communities as these kind of um, people of integrity who are quite poor, but who live in a community where they all help each other out. What a pile of shite. Speaking as somebody um, who was from a working-class housing estate in the northeast of England, oh, there was what middle-class people would call a community, all right. It was a community where if you did not say and do the right thing, and you were constantly policed, you were vilified, you were cast asunder, which is why at 16 I left. I have a loving family, etc., but I left because as a lesbian and someone who was already a feminist, my views and attitudes weren't going to go down in that so-called community. The other thing about communities, you may have noticed, is that are community leaders. In fact, when you think about it, the term community on its own is a bit lonely without leader on the end. Community spokespeople, community leaders. Now, who are the spokespeople? Who are the community leaders that speak for Muslim women, for example? or those women who are born into a Muslim family. Well, they're religious. Or, if people go to the Muslim community, such as our government, to look at what Muslim women need, which has been done, who do they go to? They go to religious women, who then speak for the community. I'm aware that I've probably only got about 30 seconds left, so just a tiny little anecdote. A very famous, rich, um, highly privileged writer, who I shall not name, but if you come to me afterwards, I'll tell you exactly who she is, um, is from a city, goes in and out of cities all the time, gets flown first class anywhere in the world to speak at book festivals. Oh, she's very talented. She deserves the fact that, you know, she's, she sells millions of books, etc. Um, I went to stay with her in her so-called community, and I said to her, why on earth do you want to live in a village? You're an out lesbian, you have a, a female partner, you have a son who isn't biologically yours, but he is your son. People are, in, in other words, you are different. These are village people, extremely privileged, educated, well-off village people, but they're village people, so what are they going to do? They're going to impose their rules, they're going to impose the status quo. As we all know, you have to have a scapegoat within a community in order for that community to have its proper cohesive values. So you have to have someone who is pointed out and cast asunder. And I said, why do you want to live in this hellhole? Going to the pub fucking quiz, <laughs> helping them put tinsel on the Christmas tree, pretending that you and your partner are as straight as the heterosexuals with their children. She said, we do do politics here. I love it here. And I thought, aha, you're a tourist. You're privileged enough to dip in and out of what you think a community is. It's utter romanticism imposed upon people who live in ghettos. And we need to stop using the term community. It is meaningless. Thank you, Julie. Uh, Brendan. I think the situation we have today is that real communities, communities that are based on something substantial and, and genuine shared interests, are constantly being attacked and undermined, usually by officialdom, also by the commentariat and others. And then uh, on the, the flip side of that is that phony communities, what I call phony communities, communities that are not based on anything substantial or any, or any clear shared interests, are constantly being talked up and built up. 
So this is the, I think, contradictory situation we find ourselves in today. What I would consider to be real communities of people are under constant attack, and at the same time, these phony communities, whether it's the gay community, the Muslim community, the black community, and so on, are being built up as these wonderful things that we all must worship and, and celebrate. So I'll just say briefly what I, what I mean by that. In terms of the real communities that I think are under attack, what I primarily mean are working-class communities. In working-class parts of Britain where there is, a, there is still, despite the best efforts of officialdom, there is still a strong sense of community. It's, it's weakened, particularly in comparison with the past, but it's still there. But those communities which are built on something substantial, primarily a shared interest, a class interest, or a shared class outlook, something real, something based on work, something based on substance, those communities are under attack. They're under attack firstly from officialdom, which is constantly intervening into these communities in various different ways, whether it's through the welfare state, whether it's through social workers knocking on people's doors and saying, are you raping your children by any chance? Or whether it's by this constant health advice, what you should eat, how you should live, how you should feed your children, how you should raise your children, this constant chipping away at the confidence of these communities and the imposition of the idea that they couldn't possibly cope without the scaffolding of the state. And George Orwell, this is not new by the way, George Orwell wrote about this in the 1930s, about these posh ladies who were going into working class homes and telling them how they should spend their weekly budget, how they should feed their children and so on. These communities are under attack, they are viewed with suspicion, as best summed up in the very modern phrase, behind closed doors. You know, this is the phrase that's always used about, particularly, let's not beat around the bush, poorer communities. Who knows what is happening behind closed doors. These people are considered to be racist, problematic, probably abusive. There's this general suspicion about who they are. The flip side is that we constantly build up phony communities. And these are communities which actually have no genuine substantial basis to them. So take, for example, the gay community. How can you possibly have a community that of any substance which will include people who claim welfare payments because they are so poor and Elton John, who is close to being a billionaire. I mean, there's no shared interest whatsoever. Same with the Muslim community. The Muslim community contains extremely poor people. It also contains extremely rich people. These are not communities. These are identity blocks. And the problem when you talk up identity blocks in this way is that it creates a real sense of conflict, communal conflict, communalism. That's what these are. This is not community. It's communalism. Thank you. Yasmin. The more globalized the world becomes, the more samey it becomes, the more, you know, you find, oh, I don't know, Starbucks and um, oases on the streets of Mumbai and um, South Africa, the more, I think, and the same applies to us here and across Europe, there is a, a, a growing kind of impulse to re-tribalize, to define yourself in a much more narrow way in a uh, nonsensical but emotionally meaningful way for some of purity. So it's no accident, uh, really, that you know the whole kind of Scottish thing, the whole English thing, the whole Muslim thing is happening at a time when we're all fearing that the w you know we're all going to end up being the same kind of person, and we kind of want it and we don't want it. So there is a very strong retribalization even amongst people who once felt at ease with internationalism. Um, I don't have that feeling, uh, but I do want to kind of 
talk about community in a slightly different way. I'm an exile from Uganda. Um, I was a dissenting child from a very early age. I think you're born sometimes, just not able to feel that the place you, you've been born into it feels right. You want to attack it, leave it, uh, rebel against it. And I was such a child and was for most of my life. And the, the dissent was against the colonial power. So when cinema, we had to stand up and sing God Save the Queen. And at the age of nine, at a Charlie Chaplin film, I refused to do that, and so I was thrown out. So the dissent against all these communal expectations was very strong. But as I get older, I do sometimes feel the need to go to mosque and just speak my language, which is dying. My own language is dying. Uh, it's a language called Kachi. I need just to be there to feel that there was a part of me that relates to a history. And I see community, the good side of community is that. So the English, my mother-in-law is English, and she says that the world is changing so fast that you know, I want to hang on to the Englishness, and I understand that, actually. So the community, imagined community of the mind or the heart is an important part of who we are as humans. Thank you, Yasmin. Simon. So the modern understanding of the tribe is about the way in which Europeans divided up the world uh, into types, into cultural types or uh, types of community, in fact. There were two, there was a huge basic division between what was called a, a scientific uh, culture and pre-scientific cultures. <coughs> And Europe looked at itself as having made a movement out of a pre-scientific culture into a scientific one, particularly through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, where we made a shift from a culture which was based on um, faith, tradition, um, myth, um, perhaps magic as well. But you, you see the idea, of Europe's idea of itself was that it made some sort of transition from that kind of pre-scientific culture into a scientific one. And then within the tradition of European thinking about a scientific culture and its characteristic contrast to a pre-scientific one was that they gave uh, a history of the development of the whole of humanity um, built on that kind of staging from the pre-scientific to the scientific. And they would also identify a division within the pre-scientific from a very early humanity, like a, a, a human animality, uh, in which one couldn't really talk about community at all. You just had a sort of uh, what was called the primal horde. And um, in the scientific cultures, which of course the Europeans thought they were that, not only do they give you that history of humanity like that, but they also, in doing that, they're saying there is another history other than just our history, tribal history, and that, or even European history, but it's uh, human history. And so you get it em emerging within the scientific culture of uh, the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, this conception of a different kind of community which isn't bound simply to its own understanding of itself, but through uh, um, uh, principles which were often associated with philosophy 
um, were thought to be something that was absolutely available to anyone. So there was no limit to the spread of that, that culture and the understanding of humanity that that belonged to. Thank you, uh, Simon. Is our association with any particular group a good or a bad thing? So, so do, uh, as soon as we associate ourselves as being part of the gay community or the, or, or the working class community or the Muslim community, uh, are, are there not risks attached to that association with a group? Uh, or should we, you know, should we be encouraging association with those groups? Or, or, or should we see it as being problematic? And just, just ve a very quick response from you so we understand your relationship to it. So Judy, first of all. Um, I was part of a lesbian and gay political movement which was calling for gay liberation, lesbian liberation, to overthrow the kind of um, you know, heterosexual dominance of normality, to, to, uh, to question whether or not heterosexuality is something that one is born or <coughs> whether in fact it's something that exists for very good purpose under patriarchy. So the notion of being involved in a gay community to me I is just is risable. Um, so it's the notion of community that I have a problem with, not being affiliated to a political movement or to a friendship group or an extended friendship group. What Brendan said is absolutely right. You know, there is absolutely no um, common shared values or interests between Elton John um, and someone who's claiming benefits. And if I think now that I'm supposed to be involved in a lesbian community, I'd say, what? So the sadomasochists and producers of porn are over here, and those that are saying... Um, that you know, the category of women should be abolished and feminism is nonsense is there. Um, it's feminism that, that would unite us. So when I came out in the 1970s, it was hugely crucial to be part of a group of lesbians who were out and proud because you could recognize everybody. We were a tribe, there were so few of us, you'd have your head kicked in if you weren't actually part of that group supporting each other. It is entirely different But now. actually, I'm not clear where you stand on the underlying question there. Are you in favor of being part of of the idea of the tribe, you, you know, the, the original tribe that you wanted part of is, was a valuable thing to you, but you're also saying, no, we should be suspicious of this, this idea of community. There are no communities. So I, I'm a little bit confused as to what your relationship is to the idea of the tribe. Are there tribes or not? Do we of want course them? There are should we be frightened of them? There are tribes. I think that the notion of community is one that is, has been developed on a hierarchical basis. That's why we have community leaders. Tribes are different. I very much appreciated what Yasmin said about how parts of her community, whether it's language or, or other, it might be, might be food, it might be the way that people get together at mosque, is dying and therefore you gravitate towards it. Sometimes with my, my lesbian feminist friends, some of whom weren't born in the 1970s, never mind out as lesbians in the 70s, get together and joke about the tribal nature of what old lesbian feminists used to be. So I'm very much in favour of being part of a political movement, of an extended friendship group, of somewhere to go for support. But I think the notion of community is built on hierarchy and it's romanticised by those who are looking top-down um, into it. Okay, so but, but whether we call it tribe or community or group or whatever, you see the advantages of being group, but there are risks attached to it? No, just that I, I would prefer to, to say that it is part of an extended friendship group or support network that you may go to that may change in time. But the notion of community is an extremely um, uh, uh, reactionary one that is based within some, something that is led by conservative men 
for the benefit, and I mean conservative with a small c, for the benefit of conservative men. Okay. Uh, um, well, uh, my issue is that the, the new, it's not that I'm against the new communities, I just don't think that they, are, they have substance. But I wasn't asking about the new communities, just the very idea of being part of any community or any tribe. Yeah. Are there risks attached to that? We often see them as being a good thing. You know, we regard the family as being a good thing. But are there ways in which being part of the family group can be a bad thing? And where's your relationship? You know, what, what's your instinctive underlying relationship? Are you a naturally sort of, I want to be part of a tribe person? Or are you somebody who, who feels, no, I, I'm, I'm constantly at odds with being part of any tribe? M my view, of course, there's risks attached to being part of a community, part of a family and so on. But I think the benefits massively outweigh the risks. My view is the Marxist view, the family is the heart in a heartless world. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that people live in families, because the world is, a, is, a, is an unpredictable place, and there are huge demands made of you in, in your work life, and you aren't in control of your life very often. Of course, it makes perfect sense that people will retreat to a sphere in which they can open themselves up to other people, be honest, and whether that's the family or the community, and sometimes they go hand in hand, I understand why they exist, and I appreciate their existence, but I think the, the problem I have is that the new communities, the, you know, the, the gay community, the Muslim community, the black community, the trans community, the disabled community, these are not communities. These are identity blocks, and they are very, very different. Right. And so I think, no, hold on, just one quick thing. I think it's really right. summed up in the new phrase, I identify as. In the past, you said, I am. You knew what you were. But I is, am. Isn't that, no, hold the, on. The, the risk, You'd the risk say has to be no, no. It, Brendan, there was the, a. The, you will favour certain communities, and other no. people will favour others. But let, let's no. Can I just finish this point? I just really good. quickly finish this point. Y your your sense of yourself was anchored. I am working class. I am a Jew. I am a Catholic. Now I identify as trans. Maybe today, maybe not tomorrow. I identify as black. You now have the president of the NUS who is politically black. This is surreal. There's no substance to this. It's right, an identity we'll, we'll, we'll expression. We'll come back to that. Are, are, there, are there some groups that are real and some groups I that just imagined? can't engage with this nonsense of Brendan's. I'm sorry. You know, de de dealing with, deciding. I don't say I identify with. I am, actually, many things, not just one well, thing. Well, I'm not talking but, about but, you. But, no, I am saying the idea that black people go around saying I identify with blackness. No, they're black. I didn't say okay. that. Okay. You did say it. No, you did I say, I, I identify with being black. You did say it, exactly <laughs> what I've said. So, but what I want to talk about but is the question. The question is, are there dangers? Of course there are dangers. The South African Constitution is an interesting example because they talked for years before the end of apartheid. Would they institute within the Constitution community rights? or would they focus on individual rights, citizenship rights? And after actually hugely interesting conversations which were taking place in Oxford when I was there as a postgrad student, they opted for individual rights. And I think they made the right decision. Because the problem, you can have all sorts of allegiances and multiple layered identities, but in the end, the autonomy of the individual, absolutely, for me, has to take precedence. Where the injustices come is when communities become incredibly oppressive and powerful and crush their own people. Thank you. Yasmin, Simon. Um, I think community, properly thought through, is 
uh, inseparable from an idea of substantive equality, that people who belong to a community are one among others among whom they are equals. That, and um, now that doesn't have, doesn't have to lead to uh, tribalism, but it can do in, rather, in the rather technical sense perhaps that I was giving it earlier, where there are limits to self-critique. So, um, in, perhaps in a way Brendan's saying that you know, when you identify as, that absolutely closes off a certain kind of question about who you are being raised. So I think that in, if, if you can have an idea of a substantive community of equals, but without this having to be self-limiting in that way, then you're looking at a kind of community which is very progressive and self-questioning and, and so on, rather than one which can be, as you said at the beginning, this sort of fortress right. idea which has closed off on itself. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Uh, OK, I'd like to come to that actually a bit later on in the debate. So I thought that was the question. Let's look, let's look at two aspects of the tribe or the group or the community that could be seen as potentially problematic. And the first of which is the relationship. If you have one group, does it mean that it's necessarily then tends to be in opposition with other groups. Is this a p possible p p uh, source of conflict? And we'll then, later on, look at the question of well, how does the group function internally and, and what are the problems of the group internally? So um, uh, isn't, the, isn't the issue, Brendan, when you want to focus on uh, some, some communities or groups somehow being the real ones and other ones not, because actually you're in favour of that group rather than the other group. You no. want this group to win. It's like you're backing that football team. And, and isn't there an embedded conflict there? So you want there's a conflict between working the working class story of the tribe and a different uh, yeah. story of the tribe. Of course there is. The, the working classes have been so in conflict so since their very existence with the middle classes and the ruling classes. That's going to be the case forever. My issue is this. Um, when we talk about isn't the tribe therefore a, for a source of conflict? Yes, it is, inevitably I think. But I think tribe is a derogatory term. It's very interesting who gets called a tribe. You never hear people refer to the transgender tribe or the Muslim tribe. I mean, some racists probably do that, or, or the gay tribe. They are always communities because they are viewed as respectable by people who who, who posit respectable opinion. The tribes are the football tribe the English tribe, the, you know, the racist tribe. Let's not beat around the bush. We know who they're talking about. They're talking about working class communities, but they get redefined as tribes. This is my problem. I would, and I want to come back to a point I made earlier. In my experience, as someone who comes from a working class Irish community in North London, but who now works primarily in a, the middle class sphere of the media and so on, 
I have seen much more tolerance in those working class communities than I have ever in the other zones I've moved in. I, you know, they are, I go back to visit my parents. They are, the, the people there are Romanian, they're Polish, they're Muslim, they work together, they live together. They, they are part of a community even though they have different tribal yeah, interests. It's, it's obviously What you case. have in the middle class uh, arena mm -hmm. is actually old-fashioned tribalism. And, and I think that's very different. In, in working class communities, in my experience, are much better at bringing on board people who don't necessarily share their views. But, but let, let's, uh, let's not get too tied up with the vocabulary at the moment. It is obviously the case that tribe carries a sort of negative rhetoric. Community carries a sort of positive rhetoric. If you want to say, you know, we're all in a, th this group is a good group, you're more inclined to call it a community. If you want to say it's a bad group, you're more inclined to call it a tribe. L let's not get too tied up in that. The question is whether being part of a group or a community or a tribe tends then to result in there being conflict between that group or tribe or community and another one. Sometimes, and sometimes the conflict is fruitful. For example, when working class communities were in conflict with their bosses or their employers or whoever else, that's a fruit, that's a creative form of conflict. Sometimes it's a very uncreative form of conflict, and that's what I think we have now with these new communities where you have basically competitive victimhood. You have the trans community saying, we're the biggest victims. You have the Muslim community saying, no, no, we're the biggest victims. So when there is no substance, when it's all about identity and narcissism, rather than a shared substantial interest, then the conflict becomes really problematic. That's what I would so say. Julie, is this a competitive victimhood? Well, yes, I mean, it can be. Uh, identity politics today are like the old ones, but without the politics. So it drives me absolutely mad. Um, I went through the 1980s, and I don't know why I'm going through it again. But one, one example is that I went to, um, to Kenya to do a story for The Observer on... Uh, it actually is a tribe, the Samburu tribe, uh, where some women had um, escaped the most horrific male violence and patriarchal violence, uh, girls and women. So the girls were running away from forced marriage. At 13, they were expected to marry a 60-year-old man who already had two wives. Um, they were also facing, of course, female genital mutilation, which many white liberals in the West call it called culture which is deeply offensive. Um, and there were women who were escaping severe domestic violence and marital rape, some of whom had been raped by British Gurkhas and soldiers who were stationed nearby. And so therefore they, they built a refuge, an open refuge, because of course people in the Samburu tribe live in mud huts with small herds, and that is how they live. Uh, so it's all women, and of course the press prior to to me going there and doing a story rather than just taking bits of stories from stories, uh, referred to them as the village that bans men. No, it was about women and girls that were escaping male violence in order to live. And they were doing brilliant things, educating uh, the girls, um, also uh, raising money from, uh, from international bodies to educate girls and boys in, in surrounding villages. Now, I actually was you know, um, out doing the story, reporting, when uh, a coach of German tourists rocked up and they were on safari. And one of their kind of little detours was looking at the, uh, the women of Emoja, which is the village, you should look it up, it's great. Um, and the women, because they need to make money to live and feed their children, do the whole kind of like, you know, dance and the singing and welcome them in and they make beads in order to make money. So these Germans got out and said, isn't this wonderful? Oh look, how quirky, how marvelous. What is this community? And I said, it's not actually a community, it's a refuge. 
and they just wouldn't get it. So the women themselves do not call themselves a community. That's the only point that I'm making. They were there because they were living rather than dying. Uh, they, were being, uh, they were evading male violence rather than being subjected to it. They are, in fact, a political movement. But you see, the German tourists wanted it to be nice and romantic, didn't they? And so the term community, I think, has become such that you take every single bit of politics out of it. And, and when the, the rich novelist friend of mine, who was doing that dipping in and out of villages, she was saying, of course there are politics here. Because I was saying, aren't you bored off your head doing the pub quiz and that's it? She said, there are politics here, you know. And what she meant was village community politics, insular, completely and utterly but insular. The, the, the question I posed, Julie, is, is the association Which with, I a group, because I with, a, with a group or a community or a tribe, does that lead to conflict? So when you referred disparagingly to the village community, you are so somehow separating yourself off, saying, yeah. we're, we're the good guys. Because I choose to we're, live in London. I, 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 yeah, that, absolutely that, I am. That's the village community over there. You know, we're a bit sort of uh, suspicious of them. Isn't this whole association with being part of any group the, the point uh, or, or the, 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 the instigation right. of social conflict? No, but the thing is that when I talk about a village, I mean, I live in North London. I live in a place called Crouch End. I know it sounds odd. I was at school there. And within... <laughs> There are loads of media live there. And, and no, within, I don't live there now. Within the kind of Crouch End lot, they call it Crouch End Village. Um, there are villages everywhere. There are villages in metropolitan, media elite, privileged, uh, you know, uh, geographical areas in which I live, right? So like, like Brendan, I'm an extremely privileged person that moves in this privileged world. But So I'm not necessarily talking about a village in Suffolk who's never actually ever welcomed a black person or a lesbian into that. And there are. There are villages like that, and we all know it. Um, or villages where, in fact, the police don't bother going to look at child sexual abuse and domestic violence because the local magistrate is a community leader. But I'm talking about anywhere where it's supposed to be some kind of grouping where there is a community spokesperson. They are always conservative men. The question I'd like to pose is, how do we contain that conflict? What's our response? If we all associate, we are sort of as humans, we, we associate with groups, we associate with tribes, but that itself is a source of conflict, how do we contain that conflict? Do you I think it is a constant conversation about you as an individual and, and, and the principles by which you try and live. And there are central principles. I think everybody in this room lives or tries to live up to, whether they come from community, religion, or just simply as a part of your ingested self, and what this particular community at a particular point. So I went into Groucho's. I don't belong to any club, ever. I'm not a joiner. I was taken to uh, Groucho's, and as I was going to the loo, this very posh guy said to me, oh, what are you doing here? Sorry? Did they let you in? <laughs> so. You know, communities come in all forms, and the first thing they do is exclude you. And that's the thing. And there are no good people here, whether it's working class people or Muslims or black people. There is always this impulse at some point to other somebody who they think doesn't belong. And so the individual to me is in constant struggle, internally and externally, against this conflict. And we owe it to ourselves and to wherever we live.
to fight that battle internally and come out with good ways of behavior, I think. I'd like to think about it both at a, a, um, a, a, a real political level, which uh, in our world remains the state, the, the, as it were, the, the horizon of our politics is primarily in relation to a state, so that we're citizens of a state. And then introduce just very briefly, because I know we don't have much time, the, the idea that came from Stoic philosophy of the citizen of the world, which was a way of trying to think out uh, uh, a way of being together in which certain, kind, certain kinds of conflicts didn't arise. Within a state, historically, we've thought of this as a condition where instead of, uh, as it were, all fighting all, um, we all, as it were, agree to submit to coercive laws which constrain us, but as it were, within that constraint, we have quite a lot of elbow room for getting on with whatever it is we want to get on with. And so you get freedom inside that rather constrained condition. And you can do exactly the same thing thinking internationally or between states, where uh, our history, I mean, these history of conflicts, is in, in modern history has been a history of state conflicts. And uh, one might ask not how one reduces arguments between villagers and North Londoners, but between states. And just as systems of coercive law function in states to limit what you do, but at the same time give you room to do whatever it is you want to do, so something similar can be done at an international level. And the only serious example of that where we're dealing with states with very different identities rather than rather homogenous situations is the European Union, which in its project has wanted to establish not, not I must say, although people like to pretend it does, an international state, right, which is just another state, but as it were, a way in which states can organise their inter interdependence. And there you have to have some kind of limitation on your freedom, just as you do uh, living in a state, uh, but here um, in an international way. And I think that one of the greatest markers of the fact that, what, that that's what the European Union, uh, at its best, as it were, is, would be, would be peace. A proposal you've suggested that we're all part of one community. Uh, I'd, I'd like us to address that. But just before we do, I'd like to ask, panel, do we think that groups are always conservative? in the sense that they require a hierarchy and a sort of core leadership and that that, that um, embeds a sort of conservative character to all groups that by definition, you know, the group is formed, somebody or some, some uh, people identify with, with the core of that group and then there's often you know, political struggle as to who is running it, but that is then imposed somehow on the group and the group is I in inherently conservative. No, I don't think groups have to be inherently conservative at all. I mean, we, we've just had the 145th anniversary of the destruction of the Paris Commune, which in my mind was the greatest community yet created by mankind. It only lasted for two months in the 1870s. It was crushed by the French government. Um, and what you had there was individuals coming together in a community to create a new way of life, a radical way of life, the most radical way of life that's ever existed, I would say, um, and they were crushed, unfortunately. But, the but th I think this comes... The full of examples of groups that have been very um, uh, 
dictatorial about what everybody in that group thinks sufficiently to send those who don't agree to it to gulags. No, yes, so, of course. So of course. It, it is, is that inevitable? Is it inevitable? No. You form a group, you have a hierarchy, you insist everybody agrees with it, everybody outside of the group, you're opposed to it. No, but the, the Paris Commune was not remotely like the Soviet Union. They're very different things. But I would say, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is I would really challenge Yasmin's point that the individual is constantly in struggle with community because I think that... This, that, that just doesn't allow for the possibility of solidarity. I don't think there is necessarily a huge conflict between being a strong-willed, autonomous individual and being part of a community. In fact, they go hand in hand because the John Stuart Mill makes this point in his book on liberty. The stronger-willed and more free an individual is, the more likely they are to be engaged within their community and within their society. These things go hand in hand. I'm in favour of strong, autonomous individuals who feel part of a community because that can be a nice thing to feel part of. I don't think so. I think we all want to belong to different communities, different circles. I would be very, very... I would feel imprisoned if anybody were to ask me what community do you belong to. I feel... I, if the happiest identification I have about myself is I'm a Londoner and I feel happy with that because London belongs to no one and no one can claim you in that way. Of course there are allegiances, but goodness me, my husband is a, came from the white, romanticized white working class and he was the only boy in his neighborhood who was allowed by the community and families to go and do A-levels. Why are the working classes always romanticised? Well, no, because, because you romanticise Why them. do you, you always... Have. People... So no, I'm commentators, saying, commentators saying, always I? put the word romanticised no, before said, working class. No, you've said they're the because most they wonderful... Because they don't think it ever existed in any serious so way. Every community has its oppression. It's a sneering. Every community. The only way is for the autonomous individual to make allegiances, but in a kind of autonomous way and leave when they want and, and disagree when they want. And that is very hard to do. If you say, I am a member of this community and I live and die for it, I would not die for the nation. I would not die for my community. I would not die for my religion. I would die for London. <laughs> is the idea of we can escape these problems of groups and tribes and communities by being associated with one sort of bigger overall uh, community, a, a feasible one, or are, or are we actually more frightened of that single overall global community than we are of any individual bit of it? Can I just say, first of all, that, that I, I think that um, in, in the history of thinking about community conflict, the absolutely most common, and, and it's an complete error, uh, the most common conclusion is that we eradicate conflict by becoming a single human community, as it were. Um, uh, it's very hard to see how that idea made its way, but it basically happened when, um, when religion and, and national differences began to be critiqued in the era of globalisation, first globalisation. So, so you think it's an illusion? Well, it's a complete idea. illusion to think that it's a way of getting rid of conflict. Did and in fact, I think a, a, a single government would be the most powerful coercive force on the planet and it would be desperately frightening because no power is free from abuse of power. So and if you have a world government, you've got the most monstrous despotism. Yes. So, uh, are we uh, all agreed on that? that, uh, that, <laughs> yes. that, that 
So, yeah. so, so we can't have a single community. No. So that, that means we're really frightened of a single group, but we're faced with a sort of reality yes. that separate groups are inevitably in conflict. Yeah. No, so well, so not that. inevitably in conflict. What you can do is make... This is not me, this is Immanuel Kant, but uh, <laughs> you, can, you can make conflict less likely. That's all you can do. You can ameliorate it. The and conflict what you is not always Can I just bad. finish the point? No, no, it's not. And he, he, thought, he thought that you transfer, transform it from violent conflict and war into certain kinds of rivalries of interest and, and so on. But it was always for him a project of uh, overcoming violence and war and moving towards greater understanding and uh, mutual respect. But you can't actually eliminate certain things. But, but also I think the s sometimes the suppression of conflict creates greater problems than it solves and you can s really see this with the, the current uh, pressure on people not to talk about certain things. If for example you criticize Islam, you are Islamophobic, you, which means you're mentally ill. Phobia is a mental illness. You, are, you have an irrational fear. You're not allowed to discuss it in an open... I know people do but you are frowned upon and you are demonized. And that suppression of conflict, I think, is what's given rise to some of the far-right movements we're seeing now, where people start to orientate around groups who, feel, who they feel are saying what they can't say. So sometimes the uh, censorious suppression of conflict can generate greater conflict. I'm very happy that more, most people don't feel they have the right to call me an effing packy. I didn't Actually, say you know, there are that. some things that are good not to I say. I said criticizing no, Islam. No, That's a religious no, no. ideology. I, I just think and it's not necessary to live in a free society and feel the need to insult people. To criticize people a religious insult, ideology. Insult, I said. Right, but okay. so we're talking about two different never forget things. Rwanda and what happened in Bosnia. What can happen with an intensification of a community identity? Because in our times, we've seen two of the bloodiest wars, intercommunal wars between people who shared can space. I just briefly far be it from me to, to defend Brendan, especially in a public place. But on it, I, I, my, my hearing was that he was actually talking about criticizing political Islam, Islamists, Islamism. That's not different. Not individual Muslim people. That's different. He said Islam. Islam, but Islam also is the there. It, we should criticize the right Islam. To, the right in the way blaspheme. we should criticize all religions. The right to blaspheme is in a very important right that people fought and died for. I have the right to blaspheme against your religion. You have the right to blaspheme against mine if I had one, which I don't. Actually, this is, uh, comes back to something I said very early on about different kinds of communities, about those in which a spirit, not just of critique, but of self-critique, is inside it, so that it's not bound to any sort of a conclusive. Um, given of what is to be understood, that there's some within it, some movement of, of development, and communities where it's absolutely forbidden to raise any objection or question. And obviously, you know, you can't raise questions about everything all the time, and there are also things that people are very, very close to, and, and, and with, with respect to them, certain forms of questioning is going to be very difficult. But I do think that we can all... Uh, see a relationship between um, opportunities for self-criticism, self-critique, and certain kinds of um, uh, uh, holding at bay conflicts over identity that can build up if, if, if it's too substantive. Well, thank you, Simon, and thank you for the panel for such a fascinating conversation and on an issue which surely at some personal level we all have to grapple with. And many thanks for making this a tremendous event. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. 
If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.